Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. We are on Chapter 7, The War on Drugs. And this next segment is entitled International Effects. The U.S. government typically supports the draconian drug policies of other countries. It is the driving player in maintaining international treaties that criminalize drugs and prevent countries from even experimenting with legalization regimes. The most dramatic effects of this policy can be seen in Mexico, where drug cartels are fighting a brutal battle for control of the lucrative domestic and North American drug markets. Major cities like Tijuana and Cuidad Juarez have been turned into gruesome battlefields, with daily body counts feeding into a national total of more than 70,000 deaths since Mexican President Felipe Calderon launched his own drug war in 2006. Police across the country are now in the direct employ of the cartels, transporting drugs, weapons, and cash. Journalists, politicians, or residents who speak out against the violence and corruption are routinely killed and their mutilated bodies left in public places as a warning to others. The Hollywood film Sicario lays out a frightening scenario in which the CIA takes an active role in managing the players in Mexican drug cartels to reduce violence along the border through targeted executions and collusion with different factions. While this is a fictional account, the CIA has a long history of involvement with drug dealing to advance other interests, such as the Vietnam War counterinsurgency, the dirty wars of Central America in the 1980s, and the, quote, weapons for hostages, end quote, Iran-Contra deal. Historian Alfred McCoy details this sordid history in his book, The Politics of Heroin, CIA Complicity in the, in the Global Drug Trade. The U.S. policy of deporting anyone arrested on drug charges has also had a destabilizing effect on several Central American countries. So many young people tied to gains and drugs in the U.S. Have been, de- have, been, have been deported to places like Guatemala and Honduras that these countries have become centers in the international drug trade and are experiencing explosive growth in their own violent drug gangs. The consequent violence has given rise to right-wing politicians promising a range of get-tough, monodora strategies, as documented in Oscar Martinez's book, A History of Violence, Living and Dying in Central America. This explosion of violence and repression has served to escalate migration to the U.S., most tragically by unescorted minors fleeing the violence of home, only to be preyed upon by thieves, human smugglers, and ultimately the U.S. immigration enforcement system. Reforms. There is a growing awareness that we cannot incarcerate our way out of the problems associated with drug use. A 2015 report from the Pew Charitable Trusts found that the harsh drug laws of the 1980s and 1990s did nothing to reduce drug use rates or even recidivism. As a result, there have been an increasing number of experiments with alternatives to conventional strategies of punishment and incarceration. Some have involved reducing the penalties through changes in laws and enforcement practices. Others have embraced alternative sentencing regimes that attempt to divert people into various treatment approaches. Unfortunately, what most of these approaches share is a reliance on police as gatekeepers. Drug courts, diversion programs, 
and various forms of decriminalization all place police in a central role that usually involves deciding who gets jail and who gets treatment, while maintaining a fundamentally punitive and moralizing approach to drugs. And let's see, that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. Uh, let me see if we should reflect here. Read through this next. Here, let's uh, let's read through this next section before we do a reflection. Drug courts. At their best, drug courts take a therapeutic approach, relying on the threat of punishment to drive people into treatment. Typically, a defendant is asked to plead guilty to an offense and then, instead of being incarcerated, is given a recovery plan that the court oversees. The court makes direct, ref the court makes direct referrals to specific treatment programs and then meets out punishment for failure to comply with the treatment regime. This can involve short-term, quote, shock incarcerations, end quote, of a week or more to get people to, quote, take their treatment seriously, end quote, or longer sentences based on the original charges. Some people spend years cycling between stints in jail and in treatment. Outcomes for those who successfully complete a program from the court are somewhat better in terms of recidivism and relapses than for those in the regular criminal justice system, leading the Center for Court Innovation and other boosters to declare them an evidence-based success story. The real picture, however, is more complicated and less positive. When we look at the overall population of people initially assigned to drug courts, a more accurate grouping, the results are not good. As many as 70% of people assigned to these courts do not, in fact, complete their programs. And for that 70%, the outcomes are actually much worse than for those in the regular criminal justice system because they have higher relapse and incarceration rates. In one study of New York drug courts, 64% of those who failed to complete the program were rearrested within three years. It also turns out that the courts don't save taxpayers any money. They are much more expensive to operate than other courts, and while a few people are successfully diverted, many more end up spending more time in jail. There is also a net widening effect. Drug courts meld together punitive and therapeutic approaches in very counterproductive ways that extend, that extend rather than reduce the role of the criminal justice system in the lives of drug users, creating what sociologist Rebecca Tiger calls an, quote, outpatient incarceration, end quote, effect. A medical approach to heroin, as discussed above, allows for some normality. People on these treatments can go back to work, live with their families, and generally experience a gradual reduction in usage. It, is all, it also keeps them off the streets and reduces the need for theft, removing them entirely from the criminal justice system. Instead, most judges order immediate abstinence, often in jails, with no medical treatment for the intense symptoms of withdrawal. This is usually followed up with an outpatient treatment program. In many cases, the person immediately returns to the streets and begins using again. This dangerous cycle increases the likelihood of overdosing and, in a few cases, has resulted in deaths that might have been avoided.
This may also be a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which specifically lists addiction as a disability. Courts should not be denying people access to medically proven treatments for their conditions. The treatment programs themselves are also problematic. Some are little more than court-mandated 12-step programs, suffused with an ethos of moral reform and punishment in which people are berated, harassed, and threatened for violating any of a host of minor rules. Often this is driven by, driven by a mindset that people will only get off drugs if they, quote, hit bottom, end quote, are confronted with their failures and then experience a moral reawakening. Medically driven strategies with track records of successes are derided as enabling addiction. The research, however, shows that coerced treatment, humiliation, and belittlement are incredibly counterproductive in ending addiction. Even when these courts do offer useful services, access to them is driven by engagement with police. To access court order services, one first has to be arrested. Second, as noted above, the resources that the courts rely on are not new ones. People who end up in court are merely moved to the front of the line, displacing others. In New Jersey, there is a severe shortage of drug treatment beds and, increasingly, the only way to access one is being arrested and sent to a drug court. According to State Senator Joseph Vitale, no relation to the author, quote, if you are arrested, you can get drug court, you can get into the system. If you don't commit a crime, in many cases, you can't get access to inpatient care, end quote. Finally, these courts only serve people with, quote, drug problems, end quote, which means they exclude the large number of people arrested on drug charges who are not themselves drug users. They go straight to prison, one reason why drug courts have had little impact on overall imprisonment rates. In the end, these courts have few resources to help addicts. The Drug Policy Alliance and the Justice Policy Institute have called for us to rethink our reliance on these courts to deal with drug problems, arguing instead that the criminal justice model should be replaced with a robust public health and harm reduction response. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this passage or within this chapter. And what stands out to me in the things we just read is the uh, is in that in that last section where Alex Vitali points out how what is needed is a, a public health response to this, uh, not a criminal justice response to this. And I think that. Uh, far too, one of the things that has been a commonality in all of these passages that we've read and all these different chapters that we've read is the people who are dealing with whatever the specific type of policing is are people who have been not only pushed to the margins of society, but after being pushed to the margins of society uh, and then coping and dealing with it in whatever the way that they can, they're, they're then criminalized for that, their, that coping mechanism. And so for some people, being pushed to the margins of society means that they are on the black market selling drugs. For some people, being pushed to the margins of society means that they are uh, actively using drugs. For some people, it means that they are unhoused. For some people, it means that they engage in sex work. And one of the things that is the difference between the concept of reform and the concept of alternatives that are being posed by Alex Vitale is that the concept of reform continues to see these people 
uh, on the margins of society as problems to be dealt with. And they the reforms continue to deal with the effects of some of the societal issues that we have. And the alternatives take the time of getting to the causes of these uh, of these things and taking the time to get to the reasons that people are in these positions. The alternatives, the alternatives to the school resource officers poses uh, programs and counseling and therapy that takes the time to get to the root as to why children or teenagers would be behaving in a way in which a school resource officer may seem to be necessary. Uh, the same thing when we speak about uh, homelessness. Uh, the alternatives to policing homelessness and, and throwing people in jail for being unhoused and for crimes that are connected to being unhoused is taking the time to deal with the societal issues that leave these people uh, without homes, is taking the time to find ways to get these people into affordable housing, to take the time to find ways to get these people into uh, uh, employment, into jobs. And then for the people who have mental health issues uh, and who have uh, addiction issues, and that's leading to the reason that they're uh, unhoused, uh, addressing that as a public health issue instead of addressing it, uh, instead of criminalizing these people. Uh, and then the same thing with sex work. When alternatives were posed to sex work, it viewed the people that were involved in sex work as human beings that were that uh, certain people who have been pushed to the margins of society, who freely have chosen to engage in sex work, finding ways to make it so that they were in less danger uh, with the understanding that until you deal with the place that the role that sex plays in our society until you deal with the fact that these women were dealing with similar forms of harassment and discretion and violence in nine to five jobs until you deal with uh, the unequitable and unequal pay and experience that women have uh, then that will help you to that's dealing with the root causes of, of sex work but until that is being addressed uh, looking at it as a and through a lens of humanity is what the alternatives do and so the alternatives pose a way for them to be uh, safer while con while engaging in sex work the alternatives find a way for police officers to not be able to uh, prey upon people who are uh, dealing with who engaging in sex work uh, and then the same thing uh, happens here when we speak about the war on drugs is that the alternatives that will be posed right now we're speaking about reforms but the alternatives that will be posed will be things that get to the root of why people have addiction issues and why people are uh, dealing with uh, whether it be a mental health issue with addiction or, or something else by uh, using drugs and then also uh, alternatives will strike at the reason that people are involved in the black market and selling drugs as opposed to these reforms which again are just ways of criminalizing people for the coping mechanisms that they're using uh, stigmatizing people for the coping mechanisms that they're using and also this is uh, a lot of reforms are people using their own moral compass and trying to inflict that upon somebody else and so we see these programs for reforms connected to religious groups. We see these uh, uh, forms of uh, these programs of reform connected to the judicial system and the criminal justice system. So that way you can't even have access to them without being arrested and without being uh, convicted or taking a plea to, to charge. Uh, okay, let's continue reading here. Decriminalization. Many states and localities have tried to reduce the burden of drug enforcement by decriminalizing one or more drugs. 
In the 1970s, 11 states eliminated criminal penalties for personal marijuana possession. The hope was that this would prevent police from getting involved in a mostly innocuous activity. In New York, the law was changed in 1977 to make marijuana possession a, quote, violation, end quote, which is similar to a traffic ticket. There may be a fine and court appearance, but no arrest. For many years, this policy was effective in dramatically reducing the number of low-level marijuana arrests. However, the law left public use or display of marijuana as a crime, and this proved to be a crucial weakness by the 1990s. As New York embraced broken windows policing, the NYPD reprioritized marijuana arrest as part of a strategy of asserting strict control over the public lives of young people of color. In conjunction with the widespread use of quotes, I don't even go motorcycles go by. We outside, y'all, we outside. In conjunction with the widespread use of, quote, stop, question, and frisk, end quote, practices, the police were stopping a growing number of young people and in many cases asking them to, quote, empty their pockets, end quote. While this is not technically a lawful order, police use various forms of coercion to pressure people to comply. If the person produced marijuana and showed it to the officer, they were arrested for public display of the drug, a misdemeanor. As a result, Marijuana possession arrests jumped from almost nothing to 50,000 a year, resulting in the incarceration of hundreds of thousands of people. Fortunately, after years of public pressure, the NYPD has mostly stopped this practice. However, they still issue, quote, summonses, end quote, which require an appearance in court and often a fine. This means many people have to miss work or school and pay fines they can often ill afford. Too often, people fail to appear and a warrant is issued for their arrest, meaning the prospect of incarceration. Decriminalization programs that leave open the role of police in making discretionary decisions or that otherwise tie people up with the criminal justice system still create a heavy burden on individuals and communities, primarily of color. More extensive and systematic decriminalization programs have shown more positive results. In 2001, Portugal decriminalized all drugs and dramatically shifted its enforcement practices to a harm reduction model. The results have been mostly very favorable. Most drug use is now treated as a health problem. Doctors can prescribe drugs, personal possession is no longer a crime, and police are no longer involved in trying to stop low-level dealing. Needle exchange is available and opioid addicts are offered replacement drugs such as methadone. Studies have found significant reductions in heroin addiction, overdoses, and disease transmission. In 1999, Portugal had the highest rate of HIV infection among injecting drug users in the European Union. By 2009, the number of newly diagnosed HIV cases among drug users had decreased substantially. There is some indication of a minor increase in lifetime usage rates, though this may be due to more truthfulness in reporting as social and legal stigmas decline. In addition, the problems of excessive use of incarceration, police corruption, and harassment of addicts has declined. What remains, though, is the illegal importation of drugs, which is tied to international organized crime. 
Police continue to pursue interdiction efforts, seizing large quantities of drugs, which keeps the door to police corruption open. Okay, and that brings us to a changing of the theme again within this chapter. And give me a second. I want to look through to see if we uh, be able to not finish this chapter. Yeah, we'll be able to finish this chapter this episode. Um, so, reflections. Okay, so there's been, there, as we go through, and, and this is one of the things that I have found to be true about all of these different pieces of literature, and it's one of the reasons why I try to continue to do these, conduct these readings, why I try to get into a, a good rhythm of, of, of doing the readings and recording them and putting them out is because I believe that as you continue to read more and more books connected to police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice, that it, it forms a puzzle. And it, it gives you a bigger picture of some of these issues. And when you uh, usually a lot of these books serve as review to other books that have been read. And I think that that serves to be very true with this specific medium of reading where I take the time to read a portion and then speak about it immediately after reading it and try and put it into my own words. And I say all those things to say that the commonalities that begin to arise throughout the end of policing are are very important to the articulation of some of these issues. And so we've seen HIV and in, in diseases and the health risks that come with the criminalization of both sex work and uh, drug usage highlighted heavily in these last two chapters, and specifically HIV. And when you think about the the demographics of people who already are more likely to, based on percentages, to have HIV, that's already something that disproportionately affects black people and people of color in this country. And then when you see some of the different ways that it is that is transmitted, when you see some of the different, uh, uh, as far as needle exchanges, something that would be as simple as a needle exchange would, even if it just meant 2% less people contracted a disease from sharing a needle, that would be the most humane thing to do. But because people are more concerned with trying to eliminate people from using drugs, even though it's been proven that that's something that can't happen, or if that's not the concern, then an ulterior motive would be that they are you know, concerned with trying to control the people who they are or control communities where they are claiming it is drug usage. Whether, no matter what their reasoning is, whether it's the first or the second one, they choose that reasoning over the humane thing of just trying to make it a, a safer exchange for people. The same thing with uh, the, the drug market in general. When they talked about how times before or earlier in the, in the country's history in the early 1900s, how these things were just were more part of medicine and they were regulated and looked at as a, a, a health crisis as, as, instead of a, a criminal crisis. And uh, as easy as it may be or as more PC as it may be to think that through time the society just changed their view of some of these things. The truth is, is that as more people of color, as more immigrants came into the country and as they were the ones who were on the margins of the society the most often, uh, this became uh, an excuse. Drug usage became an excuse to try to control those communities, to try to control those people. And they found it, and because of the capitalistic system that exists in our country, they found ways to 
profit off of the criminalization of these drugs uh, and the criminal and, and criminalizing the, the communities that these things happen in. And the collateral damage, you know, is something that is, uh, I think, well documented in this book. Uh, and, and specifically, like I pointed out, something as simple as just uh, needles leading to more people having HIV, uh, which has been, uh, again, a, a common common theme that's been brought up. Uh, okay, let's try to get through this chapter here. We might have to make this episode a little bit longer. I did a little more talking than I needed to right there. Mm-hmm. Alternatives. The use of police... The use of police to wage a war on drugs has been a total nightmare. Not only have they failed to reduce drug use and the harm it produces, they have actually worsened those harms and destroyed the lives of millions of Americans through pointless criminalization. Ultimately, we must create robust public health programs and economic development strategies to reduce demand and help people manage their drug problems in ways that reduce harm, while keeping in mind that most most drug users are not addicts. We also need to look at the economic dynamics that drive the black market and the economic and social misery that drive the most harmful patterns of drug use. Harm reduction, public health, and legalization strategies, combined with robust economic development of poor communities, could dramatically reduce the negative impact of drugs on society without relying on police, courts, and prisons. Harm reduction. One of the best known harm reduction strategies is needle exchanges. And I want to say this before I forget this. I I meant to say this uh, earlier. One of the other glaring things about this about this chapter is the. The honesty in which it is laid out, how many people use drugs in general, Uh, how many people in this country have done have used drugs, I think in the. In Baltimore, they it spoke about how over the last year, a third of the people had uh, filled out a, that filled out a survey said they had used drugs in the last year, and so I think that that's one of the things that also has to be accepted about our society. I think we live in a time where we can no longer afford to be in denial about realities of our society, and the reality of our society is that people use drugs. Uh, there's not going to be enough policing or jails or prisons that can be built to get people to stop using drugs. The reality of our society is that people uh, pay for people uh, engage in sex work. There's not enough uh, prisons or jail or police that you're going to be able to have to stop that from happening. Uh, the first thing we have to do is to try to make those both of those institutions as safe for the people who are going to do it as possible and then begin to deal with the root reasons as to why people uh, are doing that, as to why that is such a part of our society. Uh, Harm reduction. One of the best known harm reduction strategies is needle exchanges. These programs allow IV drug users to bring in used needles and exchange them for clean ones. This has proven to be an incredibly successful strategy in reducing the transmission of disease. When needles are scarce, people share them, which increases the risk of transmission of HIV, hepatitis C, and other serious infections. Arguments that needle exchanges enable users have no factual basis. People with heroin addictions are not going to quit overnight because they can't get needles, nor is the availability of needles going to encourage a non-user to start using drugs. 
These are spurious arguments driven by a moral absolutism that is completely divorced from reality. Another harm reduction strategy is supervised injection. Supervised injection facilities give addicts a place to inject drugs where medical personnel are on staff who can administer life-saving treatments such as naloxone quickly if needed. These facilities can also help people access treatment for existing medical conditions as well as addiction and reduce the presence of discarded needles in public places. Such centers exist in several European countries in Canada and are being explored in several parts of the United States. Drug treatment on demand is another strategy. Right now, most drug users face long waits for medically supervised inpatient drug treatment. They are expected to deal with their addictions alone for weeks, months, or years after requesting help. Too often, users are no longer interested in treatment when it becomes available or die in the meantime. Making treatment available when people are ready for it would reduce the burden of addiction on families and communities. Finally, we should look to public education and public health messaging. Unfortunately, the bulk of public education efforts occur within a punitive and moralizing framework. The most popular program, D.A.R.E., is run by police and has never been shown to have any positive effect in youth drug rights. Newer programs are often for profit and rely heavily on drug testing regimes in which they or others have a financial stake. Public health messaging must acknowledge the obvious and pervasive appeal that drugs have for young people and explain the real risks. Telling kids to, quote, just say no, end quote, doesn't work. Many will try and even regularly use drugs. We should make that use as safe and temporary as possible. Driving them into the shadows encourages riskier behavior, isolates them from help, and entangles them in a criminal justice system that will only terrorize, stigmatize, and demonize them. And that brings us to a changing, another changing of the theme within this chapter. And the that harm reduction I think both with the war on drugs chapter and the the work about the policing sex work chapter, it poses questions to people that are not typically posed. Uh, it, 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 it challenges people and it, it forces people to struggle with concepts that you don't typically struggle with. Uh, you don't typically uh, aren't typically asked to struggle with accepting uh, people using, you know, using what illegal drugs uh, or, you know, the, the idea of decriminalizing and legalizing drugs in the manner in which is being talked about in this chapter and the same thing with sex work is something that is would, would be taboo in this country for a very long time. Uh, and I think that, that 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 goes beyond even just color lines. You can look back. It's a book called Locking Up Our Own where there were black people in D.C. who were adamantly against methadone being used to try to wane people off of heroin because they felt that it was also having a negative impact on the black community. Even though they didn't agree with the police, uh, uh, the relationship the police had with the black community, they also didn't agree with the relationship that drug dealing and drug using had with the black community. And so the same thing will you can, you know, can said to be true for uh, sex work as well. These are things that are... Addiction and sex work are, are taboo subjects, but I think that this, the the 
ideology that we need to lead with or the concept we need to lead with when having conversations about decriminalizing these things is uh, right here. Uh, Okay. Uh, One second. Right here. Telling kids to just say no doesn't work. Many will try and even regularly use drugs. We should make that use as safe and temporary as possible. I think that has to be the mindset for uh, drug, you know, for drug usage. I think that, you know, again, has to be the mindset for uh, for sex work, that we we have to understand where we fit in into history and where we fit into civilization and the society and understand that we can't eradicate these things as it stands now. But we can do things to try to make the this these things outlets as safe as possible and to also try to make them as temporary as possible uh okay because of the fact that there are dangers that come along with both of these things uh and not because of a moral or for from a moral reason or from a a a, a ethical reason or from even a a political reason but from a, a human standpoint legalization legalization and regulation can take several forms The benefits include eliminating dangerous black markets, providing purer and safer drugs to those who use them, and collecting taxes that can be used to strengthen communities and individuals to reduce the demand for drugs and black market employment. The U.S. has begun experimenting with the legalization of marijuana and, so far, the results look promising. Colorado has implemented its system without incurring a breakdown of civilization, Crime has not taken hold and usage rates seem largely unchanged. Local police in Denver and other cities report strong support for the results so far. Even minor upticks in crime or usage would be a small price for ending prohibition. Most likely, they would reflect a sorting out period rather than a long-term trajectory. It's also worth noting that the benefits of marijuana legalization may in fact be much less than those of legalizing other drugs since marijuana usage poses so few health hazards. There are many potential methods for legalization. One is to follow the example of Colorado, in which possession for personal use and even low-level sharing are legal and sales are regulated and taxed. This could be done for all drugs, with controls on purity and restrictions on sales to minors. A less regulated form or legalization might be one in which people can buy drugs on an open and unregulated market or go to a doctor and request a prescription for maintenance doses, which would be especially important for opioid users. Any system, however, would have to accommodate recreational use that comes with medical risks. Yes, people would be able to go and buy cocaine or ecstasy on a Friday night before going to a party or a club. And yes, some of them may suffer negative consequences for that, just as they currently do from consuming alcohol and tobacco. The reality is that the system we have in place now does nothing positive about these harms. People will be concerned about public intoxication, disorderly behavior, and driving under the influence of drugs. Those can be real harms, and police have tools to uh, combat them. Those can be real harms, and police have tools to sanction such behavior. But, as Michael Resnick points out, Legalization opens the door to the possibility of reasserting informal social controls on problem behavior. By bringing drug use out of the shadows, families, friends, and others will be in a stronger position to set limits on the behavior of users. 
Social norms are always more powerful and effective than formal, punitive ones. Look at the alcohol abuse rates and problem behavior in places like Italy and France. Public drinking there is widespread and almost completely unregulated, even for minors. But public intoxication and alcoholism are mostly absent. Economic development. Many people involved in the drug industry don't really have a drug problem. They have a job problem. Many others have drug problems that directly stem from the economic conditions they struggle with. There is no way to reduce the widespread use of drugs without dealing with profound economic inequality and a growing sense of hopelessness. African-American and Latino neighborhoods have suffered devastating declines in employment levels and overall economic well-being. Private sector employment has largely dried up, and what remains is low-paying and contingent with little chance for advancement. At the same time, austerity At the same time, austerity has undermined the public sector employment and social programs that constitute the few remaining avenues for stability in these communities. Buying power for the jobs that remain is declining as employee contracts fail to keep pace with inflation. Rural white areas are also considerable, under considerable stress. Here, too, living standards are headed straight down as manufacturing jobs are mechanized or move overseas and wages and social programs stagnate or decline. For too long, the only economic assistance many in these areas could hope for was the opening of a new prison. Even when private sector employment becomes available, low, non-union wages have become typical, combined with dangerous and demeaning working conditions. These conditions have fueled the rise of methamphetamine use and dealing. Researchers like William Garrett have shown that use and dealing are concentrated among the under and unemployed and those working in dirty, dangerous, and repetitious jobs with low pay and poor working conditions. Strict enforcement, strict enforcement, forced treatment, and police-driven public education campaigns have been a total failure because people's underlying economic circumstances remain unaddressed. Until we do something about entrenched rural poverty, this trend will continue. Unemployment and bleak prospects drive people into black markets, which become the employers of last resort. We need to invest in developing the human capital of people in these areas and find meaningful employment in developing infrastructure and improving the environment. We also need to take a tough look at how multinational agribusinesses have transformed the rural landscape in ways that degrade the quality of the food we eat, the livelihoods of rural people, and the natural environment. Groups like Black Youth Project 100 in Chicago are working to develop economic strategies to improve the economic well-being of poor communities of color so that they are not dependent on black markets. They demand increased public, se they demand increased public sector hiring, a livable minimum wage, and real social supports, especially for children and families. The issue of reparations must also figure into this conversation. As Tanishi Coates points out, the history of American wealth generation is a history of the exploitation of black people from slavery to the present. That past cannot be ignored in any effort to come to terms with inequality. Some of the resources for overcoming that legacy could come from the billions we now spend on fighting the drug war and the taxes we could collect from legalized drugs.
And then that brings us to the end of that chapter, chapter seven, the war on drugs, and to the beginning of chapter eight, which is entitled Gang Suppression. And we will begin that in the next episode. Uh, we're at about 40 minutes here. And once again, I think that Alex Vitale does a great job of summarizing everything and wrapping everything up and providing those alternatives. Uh, and so I'm not going to make this episode run any longer. Uh, please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I'm going to holler at y'all tomorrow.